0: أعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على سيدنا ونبينا I القاسم المصطفى محمد وعلى آله الطيبين الطاهرين be the على أعدائهم أجمعين من الآن إلى قيام يوم الدين السلام عليكم dear brothers and sisters I hope everyone is doing well and welcome to another episode of our Tafsir of Dua podcast. Uh, in the previous episode, we were going through these requests and these hajat that Ali ibn Abi Talib had and he was asking Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for them one by one. The last one that we reached was this Ya Allah, I ask you that the moments during my day and nighttime, the seconds that pass by, that you would make these seconds and these moments, you would revive them, you would give life to them with your dhikr, with your remembrance. And we elaborated on this, that when we talk about the dhikr of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and when we talk about the remembrance of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, usually what comes to our mind is the verbal or the oral dhikr, which it means that you are saying a certain phrase or you're saying a certain dhikr. Maybe you have a tasbih with you. Um, Maybe you're sitting in the masjid There's a certain connotation that comes with this word dhikr However, when you look at the teachings of Islam, the literature You actually find that there's oral dhikr, there's verbal dhikr And then there's the type of dhikr that has to actually do with your actions Meaning that you carry out an act And while carrying out that act, you are remembering Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala And we said that if Ali ibn Abi Talib is asking for his whole day to be revived to have, to, in, in, in other words, be inhabited or have life injected into it, so to speak. If he's asking for every moment of his day and night to be like this with the remembrance of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, he obviously is not referring to that type of remembrance that is done in an oral manner. The reason because of this, the reason for this is because, well, at the end of the day, he has tasks to take care of. It's not like Ali ibn Abi Talib woke up in the morning, he had nothing to take care of, and his life was just, you know, all he had to do was worshipping Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in the traditional sense of the word. No, he had a whole host of things to take care of. Specifically, when he became Khalifa, we know that there was a whole host of tasks that he was supposed to take care of because he was leading the Muslim society at that point. Therefore, there is a different type of dhikr. This type of dhikr is the type that you carry out an act of worship, and while you are carrying out that act of worship, you are remembering Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala, and we gave some examples of this. We said that in Islam there are certain deeds that might even be see, might even be seen as mundane. They might be seen as you know part of your normal routine. That if you do them with the proper intention, and if you do them with the remembrance of Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala, and the idea that I'm doing this as an act of worship, then they can also count. As a form of remembering Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala, and we give multiple examples of this. The best example that I can give really is the interactions that the wife and a husband have inside the house, or even between the parents and the children, right? These interactions, if they're done with the right intention, if they're done in the right manner, um, if I smile at my wife, if someone smiles at their husband, right, and they do that really with the intention that I'm smiling because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants me to bring happiness to my my wife or my husband or my child for example all of these can count as dhikr and all of them can count as ibadah then he moved on, he said mausula, Ya Allah, make it such that I am constantly serving you now, how can you serve Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? really one of the best ways of serving Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is serving the servants of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and that's why in hadith we have that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala refers to his servants as his ayal his family which is a very it's really a, a term of endearment if you think about it it's such a beautiful way of describing his relationship with uh, other servants that these other servants of mine they are you know part of my family you know if you think about it you think about a head of a family maybe the the husband and the wife and then they have children you know if you really want to uh, make yourself dear in the heart of the wife and the husband the mother and the father what do you do? you're nice to their children you're kind to their children one of the ways of serving Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is to serve his family who is his family? the servants of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and the number of ahadith that we have when it comes to taking care of the needs of another believer is just, it's so much that we really wouldn't be able to cover all of it today um, but I will share this one hadith in which um, the Maasoom, he says that as long as you are trying hard to resolve an issue of another believer as long as you are busy serving another believer Allah subhanahu wa Taala is busy serving you He is busy looking after your affairs Now, of course, you know, when we use the word busy for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, we don't mean it, you know, in a literal fashion because he he can't get busy. But that's exactly the point, right? Like, let's say you're spending two hours to solve this problem that this servant of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has, this brother or sister has. Imagine for two hours, the most efficient person on earth, right, is looking after your situation, looking into your affairs, Right, that that means that Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala puts all of His authority and power at your disposal. He channels all of it to start taking care of your problems and your issues. Right, so that really carries a lot of weight and a lot of meaning. And there are multiple other hadith that we have in this regard. And this is really one of those questions. To be honest, uh, traveling to. Uh, multiple communities you know speaking at multiple communities this is one of those questions i get very very often especially when brothers and sisters you know settle down in life now they're married but their children are like you know they're older at this point and even their children are married now and you know their life is not as busy as it used to be when you have like a 10 year old and a seven year old so they've really settled down alhamdulillah they have a good income or maybe they've retired now and a lot of times the question that they pose is well. What can I do now? Yes, I know I have to pray. I know I have to fast. I know I have to take care of the fundamentals, of you know my religious duties. I know I have to pay my khums, You know, zakat may not apply to everybody. Um, but what what else is there to do outside of this? And what I what I always tell them, is two things. First of all, continue to educate yourself on the religion. There is so much to be learned with regards to the religion that we don't learn just attending the normal day-to-day programs at your local center and then but even more important than that there are so many rooms or so many areas where you can serve the community right if you have that ability if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has granted some time to you some convenience to you you're not necessarily you know busy with uh, going to a hospital, for example, or you're not dealing with a specific illness, alhamdulillah, your life is overall it's a comfortable life. This is your opportunity to now take these years that you have, right, which is not a small amount of time. If someone retires at 60, right, and normally you might live till 80, 85, 90, 95, you know, whatever the case might be that's another 30 years. You know, if you ask a 20-year-old about someone who's 60 or 70, they might look at that and say, well, 60, 70, you know, life is pretty much coming to an end now. But if you ask a 60 or 70-year-old, no, they. a lot of times they'll feel like, no, life is very much going on the way it's been going on. So it's still a lot of time left. Now, how can I utilize this time? Well, there's so many opportunities to serve the community that you live in. And when I speak of a community, this is both... You know, the smaller Shia community that you might be a part of. And then even at a greater level, the general Muslim community that you might be a part of. And when you go beyond that, even the non-Muslim community that you live in, right? So many opportunities to serve. Why not use the time, the energy, you know, the, the intellectual capabilities that you have serve this community one problem that we have in our communities is obviously having volunteers and when we talk about volunteers we're talking about people who can put in the time and effort and really be dedicated to getting the task done in a beautiful and a professional manner bismillah that's that's an opportunity all of this falls under this line of that i am constantly in your service how do you serve allah subhanahu wa ta'ala Well, you serve the you know the servants of Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala. We have huge issues. For example, the issue of refugees. Right? What can I you know what can I offer in this regard? There's a whole lot that I might be able to do in this regard, and many other issues of that type. So when we speak, when we ask Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala that He makes it such that we can continuously serve Him, we need to understand that serving Him is not necessarily in the form of prayer or salat or fasting you know those those are great and wonderful and many of them are wajib so you have to do them but then there's all these opportunities to serve Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala by serving the communities that you live in and the and and those individuals in the community who are more vulnerable uh, compared to uh, others moving on this is the next request of Ali ibn Abi Talib and this is very beautiful wa And that you make my actions accepted from your perspective. That you accept the a'mal that I do. Now someone might say, Well, what does that mean? What do you mean, uh, you know, accept my deeds? When I pray, like, does Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala have to accept my deed? And if He were to accept our deed, what exactly does that mean? What does that look like? You know, a lot of times when you're done with prayer, you will turn to your brothers and sisters in the masjid. Sometimes people will shake hands. They'll say, Allah. Right? May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala accept your deeds. Okay, so what is this referring to? In the month of Ramadan, anytime anyone wants to speak, either you know in the month of Ramadan or even after the month of Ramadan, everyone will start speaking and they'll say, May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala accept your a'mal in this month month of Muharram is obviously the same case and of course any other holy occasion that we come across we speak of the acceptance of Allah Subhanahu wa ta'ala when it comes to our deeds but what does this actually mean when i say may Allah Subhanahu wa ta'ala accept your deeds practically speaking how is this different from me just doing a deed and what is the result when Allah Subhanahu wa ta'ala does accept my deed how does that practically play a role in my day-to-day life. Okay, so before we go into that, I just want to share uh, one point that we find from the verses of the uh, Quran that speaks to when Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala will accept the deeds of a of a human being. So the acceptance of a deed means that Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala not only will He take His this deed and consider it to be done in the sense of checking this checklist of deeds that we need to carry out for him that will then essentially prevent us from entering into hellfire. It will prevent us from being punished. That is one level. That is not what we're referring to when we talk about the acceptance of deeds. The acceptance comes after that. The acceptance comes when not only you essentially check the box and you say, I prayed, right? It comes when Allah Subhanahu wa ta'ala accepts your deed and the result of it is that it has a spiritual effect on you. You know, Salat has a spiritual effect that we talk about. Uh, fasting has a spiritual effect that we talk about. These deeds if they are not, quote-unquote, accepted, if they are not, if they don't become kabul from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, they will not carry the spiritual effect that they have to carry. The only thing that they will do, and even this is, of course, something that is, you know, it's, it's great. And, and it's not, I'm not belittling this. But the only thing they will do if they are not accepted is that, yes, it will check the box. So on the Day of Judgment, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala cannot look at you and me and say, for example, you didn't pray. You, for example, you didn't fast, you didn't pay your khums, okay? No, you did all of these. As long as you do them based on the shara'i and the legal instructions with regards to each of these deeds. For example, when I pray, right, I can't talk during my prayer. When I pray, I have to have wudu before I pray. Okay, all of this makes sense. When I pray, there are certain legal aspects of it that I have to keep in mind. If I keep those legal aspects in mind, my amal is a valid amal. My act of worship is a valid act of worship. But it is valid from a jurisprudential slash legal perspective. And the result of it is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, on the Day of Judgment, He cannot punish me for not praying because I did pray. He cannot punish me for fasting right? because I did fast. And He will reward me for it too because at the end of the day, it was an act of worship. But if my act of worship only meets this standard, and it does not go beyond that to then be accepted by Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala, my act of worship will not carry with it the spiritual effects that it is supposed to have for me. What are the spiritual effects? For example, we say when you pray, if you want your salah to be kabul, for example, one of the things is that you are supposed to pay attention in your prayer. Right? That's why we have hadith that whichever part of prayer, whatever portion of prayer, that you were actually attentive in, and you were actually paying attention to Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala, and your heart was present in the prayer, that portion of your prayer is quote unquote accepted or kabul. So, what does that mean? That means the spiritual effect of that portion will apply to you. Now, if I pray and I'm not paying attention, will Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala punish me? No, because that's not one of the things that makes your prayer invalid from a jurisprudential or a legal perspective. But will the prayer have the spiritual effect on me in the sense of building my faith? In the sense of when I'm speaking to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, that I would sense a little bit of pleasure? speaking to the one who owns everything in the universe? Will I have those feelings? Will it have the spiritual effect that the verses of the Quran says that when you pray it will for- forbid you in الصَّلَاةَ anil wal munkar. It will forbid you of going back to wrong deeds right doesn't mean doesn't say you you won't go back it just says it will forbid you so it's kind of a deterrent will it have that spiritual effect well that depends on whether my amal my act of worship is accepted and for the acceptance of my amal there are extra conditions beyond simply the jurisprudential conditions of my prayer so someone for example who comes and prays he prays but in his prayer while he's praying deep down he has a sense of you know holier than thou he has a sense of عجبة, right and there's a difference between and is not arrogance if you want it to be precise but you know briefly what it means is is the type of arrogance that you feel but that you don't display right so like people look at you and you act very humble but in reality deep down you really believe that you're better than any, anybody else over here like you're better than everybody around you right so this is what عجب is if I pray with عجبة, right my salat is going to be accepted it's, there's no problem with regards to it. It's not a batil salat. But will it have the spiritual effect that the prayer is supposed to have? Of course not. Not even close to it, right? In the salat we say, we pray to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, say, wa We only worship you, right? Well, how does that go hand in hand with me thinking I'm the best on earth? right? There's no humility in any of that. So that means the prayer has not really actualized itself in my heart and in my mind. Similarly, for example, another uh, a great uh, instance of this is when it comes to fasting. We say that when you fast, there are certain elements that if you don't keep in mind, if you don't take into consideration, your fasting from a jurisprudential perspective will fundamentally be invalid. It won't have any jurisprudential value, meaning that if you mess up, if you mess around with these elements, you will have to go back and you will have to redo You're fasting. If I fast, for example, right? And I eat in the middle of the day. Or I fast, for example, and there are certain, you know, uh, when it comes to, for example, intimacy. Right? I'm intimate. Okay. These are elements that will make my fasting batil. Batil from a jurisprudential perspective. But then, I can fast a fast that is completely valid from a jurisprudential perspective. There's no problem with regards to it. No faqih. No, jur- you know, uh, no jurisprudential uh, pr- uh, expert, essentially, can tell me that my fast is batril and yet my fast has no spiritual effect on me. Or at the very least, it has a very, very little or small spiritual effect on me. Is this possible? Absolutely. If I fast and I backbite, for example, at the same time, what spiritual effect is this fast is this fasting going to have for me? And that's why we have hadith, for example, that the one who fasts and the only thing that he does is that he doesn't eat or drink. He's just putting himself through trouble. Right? There's not much benefit to it. Now, granted, will this person be punished on the Day of Judgment for not fasting? No. And that's why even if my fasting is not done in the ideal manner where it is accepted by Allah, Subhanahu Wa Taala, I am to at least stick to at least the jurisprudential aspect of it right the legal aspect of it because at the end of the day there will be some benefit to it and that benefit is that you know Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will not punish me those are the red lines obviously but if i wanted to have a spiritual effect on me if i want to build faith with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala then there are extra conditions now what are these extra conditions when we talk about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala accepting our deeds and what can i do in order for my a'mal to actually be kabul, in order for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to actually accept them and therefore the spiritual effect essentially manifesting itself for me. That is something that we will discuss in the next episode and we will explain this through the verses of the Quran that talk about the story of the two children of Adam and how each one of them went about the deeds that they did and the one line that the habil, the you know the good son of of Adam السلام, mentioned that put all of this into perspective for us. Inshallah, in the next episode we'll move on to that as well as the next line of the dua. حَتَّى تَكُونَ أَعْمَالِي كُلُّهَا واحدة, that all of my actions they will be uh, centered around one point of you know one center everything will revolve around one concept and one being we'll discuss that inshallah in the next episode until then keep us in your du'as wassalamu alaykum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh